whenever I do anything that I think is particularly challenging, I always have this fear. And it's that kind of little bit of anxiety that keeps me on check. But it's, but it's not just, that's not just with work, but also when I'm trying something new or change, there's always that fear that, oh no, if I do that, all of this security that I've got is going to go away. And it's almost like, again, it's that voice in my head that I've got to shut down and just try things because I feel like otherwise I'll always stay in a space of mediocrity. And that's where, that's not where I want to be. I want to aim higher because I feel that that little voice continues, sometimes just continues to hold me back. And that scares me a lot because I'm like, no, you know, life is short and this pandemic has made me realize how short it can be. And, you know, we really, really got to live to our fullest. We've really got to go out there and, and, and put ourselves out there and ask for those opportunities and change things if we feel like something isn't working and not live in this constant state of, oh no, I can't do that because I might, I might not work it, I might fail. We've got to keep trying. Hello and welcome to the Women of the Future podcast, a podcast made in collaboration with the Women of the Future programme, a platform built to unlock a culture of kindness and collaboration among leaders, as well as support and celebrate the successes of women. I'm Kim Rowell and I won the media category at their awards in 2018 in recognition of my continued work as a commissioner, producer and children's author, particularly within the mental health remit. I'll be talking to my guests on this podcast about their careers, who or what gave them their first big break, their successes, failures and inspirations along the way, and how they came to be a part of the Women of the Future Network. Growing up in Smethwick as one of five children, Belvinda Sidhu was keen to use education to get ahead in life, following the death of her father when she was just eight years old. Hailing from a strict Punjabi family, Belvinda had to act as a carer for both her mum and sister from a young age, and was delighted to become the first in her family to go to university to study psychology. After volunteering at a local radio station, Belvinda managed a refuge for victims of domestic violence, before returning to her journalism pipe dream and studying for a postgraduate diploma in journalism at Birmingham City University a course that was sponsored by ITV, and the company became her long-term employer shortly afterwards. 2018 was a stellar year for Balvinder, seeing her gain three national awards, the Royal Television Society's Journalist of the Year, the Asian Media Awards Regional Journalist of the Year, and the Asian Woman of Achievement Award, part of the Women of the Future programme in the media category. It was a challenging upbringing actually. Three of my older sisters, they got married, left home when I was 11. So it was just me, my mom and my younger sister who's got learning difficulties. So I ended up being a carer for her and my mom who, although she's lived in this country for many years, she can't speak or read or write English. So I used to go to all her appointments with her. I used to go to parents' evening with my younger sister. So yeah, it it was difficult childhood actually. Um, I felt like I had to grow up quite quickly because of that. I was the first person to go to university in my family because I felt uh, growing up that we struggled financially. So I really wanted to use education to help me sort of get ahead in life. Do you think that that was something that you were conscious of then being forced into maybe a more adult role at a young age? And you said just then that you were mindful that you wanted to do better for yourself and your family. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like we didn't have a car growing up. So I remember that we used to walk for 50 minutes um, every Saturday to do our food shop. And um, we'd carry really heavy bags home and walk all the way home from, uh, from the supermarket. And I remember thinking that I can't wait to learn to drive. I'm going to buy my mum a car. As soon as I get a job, I'm going to buy a car and I'm going to make life better for us. Because it was, it was really tough. I just remember like even buying a school uniform, it was too expensive for my mum. So she used to, you know, she used to sew everything, stitch everything back up again. Food, going to restaurants, going for meals, all of these things, they were extremely rare occasions. And, and I just remember thinking, I want my life to be better, much better. Um, I don't ever want to have to worry about money for a start so I had I had a hunger in my belly from a very young age not just for money it was it was never a financial thing so at school you know there were I was in a I went to a state school and and a lot of kids around me they weren't really interested in studying but I was and I wanted to do well I wanted to do better so I was probably you know what you would describe as a geek at school but I carried that through with me into college and uh, into university and and, I, and it worked it helped me a lot because I have managed to, I feel I've managed to succeed in, in life from where I've come from and where I am today. So were you a very diligent, hardworking student, nosing books, really focused on what you were trying to achieve? Absolutely. I used to live in a library. Um, you know, I, I, after school, I spent hours in the library. Weekends, I'd spend hours in the library. I lived in Smedic Library when I, was, when, I was at, <laughs> when I wasn't at school or at home. That's where I was. I read books uh, many books growing up I had my nose in a book all the time it wasn't fun though like I wish when I look back I really wish I had more fun but I came from a very strict Punjabi family so even going out wasn't allowed um, it was all very very strict so my freedom to explore and go places really happened when I started university and I left home what did you study at uni I did psychology Okay, so what was your first job out of education? I'm guessing now working in media, you probably did a lot of work experience as well. Yeah, so the first job I got was in a, an Asian radio station, actually, a voluntary. And I was working there for about six weeks, but I wasn't making any progress in terms of actual radio work. I was doing a lot of receptionist type stuff. And every time I tried to do any sort of production, I was stopped because I think... The managing director, it was quite handy for him to have some free work experience, but I realised that I couldn't do that for very long. So I kind of gave up the pipe dream of becoming a journalist quite quickly, actually. I even applied for a few jobs at the BBC, never got anywhere. I didn't have any contacts in the industry, so I gave up. Because my mum was like, you know, I've sent you to university, I've paid for your fees, and now you're um, working for free. You really need job so then psychology was always my backup so um i went into working with victims of domestic violence women and children so i did that for a long time i worked in a refuge i managed a refuge what was that like that must have been quite an experience yeah it was tough i mean i, I worked my way up i loved it i mean i loved it i loved I was working with children to begin with and I was supporting them through the trauma of what they'd been through. And then I started managing the team of staff who were looking after the refuge. I loved it. It was difficult though, because um, you, you take it home with you. You know, that's the difference between the job that I do now and the job that I did then is that 
you take it home with you you think about it you know in the, uh, when you know when you go to bed in the morning you're constantly thinking of ways to make life better for them whereas now you know you do a story you, you do it on that day and then you move on to another story the following day but it took its toll on me i think eventually i started to feel like i wasn't re I, I was losing my I was just I was just losing my interest in it. It got to a point where I, I just felt like I couldn't help anymore because it taken so much. But I loved it and it and it shaped me as a person. It taught me many things which helped me. So one of the key skills that I learned in that time and also having done psychology is listening to people. Um, it's a real skill I find that and I find that I'm very, very good at getting people to open up to me. So when I talk to people who've been through all sorts of experiences in their life that I feel that I know how to make them comfortable and that's a real skill. So how did you move on then from working with the refuge and then moving into journalism what was your first break in that area? So I went back to university because I realized that this pipe dream was still kind of simmering away in the background and you know and I used to I, you know I used to talk to my husband I got married I talked to my husband I said I really want to try the media industry again. I feel older, I feel more confident, I've got more money, uh, which would help. <laughs> so I went back to university uh, to do a postgraduate diploma in journalism at Birmingham City University. Then I said to my husband, look, I said, if I don't get anywhere with this, then you know, fine, I'll go back to my old job, but I need to try. So I did, and um, off the back of that, I actually just got sponsored by ITV, and I've been with them ever since. They offered me a bursary, and they gave me a six-week work experience placement, and that six weeks was enough for me to learn the industry. It wasn't enough for me to learn everything, but it was a really good entry point for me to go into, into news, and I've been with them ever since. So is there a standout moment, do you think, in your life that you would say helped you kind of consolidate your thoughts in this area like you say you probably had, had enough emotional involvement to move on from what you were doing into journalism obviously then studying for the diploma which was sponsored by ITV but was there a moment or maybe a person that helped you move in that direction with your career? It's one of those things that I always knew I wanted to do I mean when I was 15 I produced my first documentary as part of my GCSE media studies course and I remember thinking then that this is what I want to do and I think that when I went back to university, I just had this really good feeling that this was going to happen for me. But, you know, in terms of people who might have inspired me, I mean, I grew up watching Sonia Diol. She's a BBC Asian presenter, uh, Asian network presenter. She uh, used to host a program called Network East on the BBC. And I remember watching her as a child and I was thinking, I, I want to do that job. And then I heard her on the radio hosting debate shows and I think, I want to do that job. <laughs> I want to do what she's doing. And, um, you know, in, and I saw her and I used to see her and I used to think, I want to, I want to be her. I want to do what she's doing. I never knew how I would get there. It just seemed impossible. I mean, it felt like when I was entering the industry, certainly at the beginning, was that you have to know the right people. Mm. So it was just really, for, I feel really fortunate that I went back at a time when they had these programs in place, I suppose, that opened doors for people from different backgrounds to enter because when I speak to my friends who are journalists now or in the industry a lot of them tell me that they knew people um, who helped them get a bit of work experience so you know they acknowledge that and I and I didn't have that so it, there wasn't really any 
particular standout moment, it was a lot of grafting. And even when I entered the industry, it was a lot of grafting to be able to be who I am today. How do you feel about that? Because I'm in a similar situation myself. I didn't really have the contacts. I didn't know anyone. No, I wasn't related to anybody within the industry. How do you think that has helped mould you into the person that you are today? Has it kind of solidified your determination and your focus? I think so. I think, I think it makes you, one, more appreciative of the fact that you're there. You know, I'm never going to lose my graciousness. I'm very grateful for the position that I have. But I also, what it has done for me is made me realise that there's probably lots of people like me out there who have an interest in this field, who might come from a working class background or who might be Asian or female. And I just think, you know, I'd like to do something to support that, to help them. So, you know, one of the things that I do is I go into schools in disadvantaged areas and I, and I talk about my job, I talk about my background, I'm really open because I want to, I'd like to use this experience to inspire the next generation. I don't begrudge anyone else who has managed to get into the industry using their privilege. But I do feel a sense of responsibility to make things better for the next generation coming through. You've been at ITV for nearly 13 years, which seems like a very long time. But the year 2018 was particularly brilliant for you personally. Tell us more about that and why you think it all happened. It was literally, was it May, October, November, you received all of these accolades? Yeah, it was an extraordinary year, uh, 2018 was. I mean, um, people joke about it where I work now. They're like, oh, well, you have to buy a new cabinet now. For those <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember at our away day, my boss listed all the awards the team had won and, and she, had, she had one page for the team and then she had one slide just for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, really embarrassing, actually. Yeah. I, I felt, you know, I felt like I wanted the ground to swallow me up on that day. <laughs> But, you know, the thing is, I would never have anticipated that I would win. I used to think, oh, wouldn't it be nice to be nominated for an award? Because I'd go to these award ceremonies and be, wouldn't it be nice to have my name on the list? But I never really ever thought that I was capable of winning awards or or I I had some... I had the ideas or even the ambition to do that. But I guess like that year was quite extraordinary. I mean, you know, I'm all I do, in all honesty, and I'm not trying to sound humble or anything like that, is all I do is I have ideas. Um, I, I'm, I'm passionate about certain things and I just go for them. I just go for the stories. I have a good team of people who commission and support the ideas that I have and I bring them to life um, on television. And some of them people have really appreciated because they've been bold, unique, different stories that perhaps we haven't covered before. And they just come from a place of just what I see and what people tell me and and it's wonderful because it's wonderful to come home with an award. Although my mum, you know, she always says to me, she goes, does that mean you're going to get more money now? And I'm like, thanks, <laughs> <laughs> mum. I'm telling you one thing about Asian parents. Is it's all about the hard cash, you know. <laughs> we'll the money. And I'm like, this is it, mum. And she, I'm like, this is an award. This is amazing. You don't have any award. to win this award. <laughs> So across all the what you've done, you've done some really varied content. Is there anything in particular that stands out for you or that you're particularly proud of? So 
that year, I think the year for the Asian Women of Achievement Award, I, co I covered a story about young girls being groomed and sexually exploited by gangs of men. And I found that there was this was a particularly important issue also affecting young South Asian girls as well. So I covered it from that angle and that was very powerful. But I also covered the issue around is this crime being committed by men from a particular community as well so we i tackled that subject which was really sensitive really difficult and mm. um, really challenging and then you know since then again you know last year i covered the whole row over whether it's okay to teach four and five year olds about same-sex relationships there were huge protests going on in birmingham at mm. the time and i went into the middle of that you know to cover that in the most fair responsible and honest way possible and that was extremely challenging as well because a lot of the people protesting um, were from the muslim community and i felt a sense of responsibility to make sure that you know any journalism i do on this story is isn't making a particular community look bad mm. but also to challenge them on their views you know they were being accused of you know homophobia and things it was a challenging story to cover and I find it really tricky when I'm in the middle of it, but I'm always really proud when I finally see my work come to fruition. It's hard um, to do these stories, but I, I always feel as a journalist, I have a sense of responsibility to do them properly. Does and it ever give you sleepless nights? Yeah, it does actually, because you're, like I said, in that time, it, I felt such a, it was a story that was going on for such a long time and, and I did, and you know, and I did find myself completely embroiled in it. So day and night, that's all I used to think about was how can I do this story to the best of my ability um, to make sure that, you know, we're debating this issue, but we're also doing it in a way that is fair and responsible as well, based on the society and the world we live in today. Uh, a huge responsibility to do it properly, to do it well. And I did, um, I came across individuals who opened up to me, uh, a Muslim, practicing Muslim woman who's also bisexual, and she opened up her story to me. And I think that was quite eye-opening at the time for many people. And um, subsequently, you know, I've had junior journalists who work with me now come up to me and they said, we watched that story, Val, and it inspired us to get into this industry. And I've had a discussion and a debate with my mom who, you know, who's, who doesn't believe in same-sex relationships. And it was just, it's just a conversation that, you know, I just felt, it, it just started a conversation that was extremely powerful and important, I think, for the year of 2019, which is when this happened last year. Has the pandemic changed the way you work? I mean, I know the answer, but <laughs> could you maybe just let us know a bit more about how you as a presenter and a reporter and journalist generally have managed this situation? Basically, I mean, when, I, when it first happened, I had to stop working and work from home. So I wasn't, a, I wasn't able to go into the studio or, or report because my husband's frontline um, NHS doctor, he works in infectious diseases. So I had to really support him to do his job. And then I was in charge of the children who, who suddenly schools and nurseries, everything closed. Uh, and, that, and that was difficult. I mean, I, I did what I had to do at the time because at that particular time, it was the most important thing was to support my husband because he's saving lives. But as, as time went on, I, I really missed being on the road, being in the studio. And I, and I, and I think that what the pandemic made me realize is that what a huge part this job is of hmm. writing as a person and what a terrible homeschooling teaching I am. <laughs> I'm sure you're not. I'm sure you're not. And my, and my son is like, <laughs> so funny. He's already told me many times, my teacher is better than you, mommy. She's more 
You're like, well, she's had training. Years I know. Training. And it was, you know, and I just remember thinking, oh God, this is really hard, you know, being at <laughs> home all the time. And whilst also, you know, working from home as well. It was, uh, so that, so that was at the beginning. But as things have started to ease, you know, I've gone back to work. My husband's work has relaxed a little bit. There's not as many cases now. They are dropping. So we feel we're in a, we're, we're in a very different situation to where we were mm. a few weeks ago and they're very extreme situations at the beginning felt very extreme we thought we were quite terrified at the beginning because you know he was being advised to write a will because all these medics and nurses were dying and oh, wow so he, you know, it was terrifying for us as a family, and yeah, you know, we, he like was self-isolating in our home. Um, we, you know, when he was on a when he was on a COVID ward, we would we wouldn't have much to do with him, just to uh, reduce the risk of infection. Because we were both acutely aware that this is affecting people from our community the most, and people from our community from BAME backgrounds were being hit harder. And if one of us was to become sick, one of us would have to look after the kids. If both of us were to become sick, then we. Would look after the kids because all of our usual carers or grandparents were all shielding it was really challenging actually and I remember like I found myself drawing upon my faith at that time a lot more so my kids and I we would meditate every day and you know we, we were just acutely aware of our own um, sense of mor morbidity I think so it was it was and now we're, we're in a different situation like we feel so much more relaxed I've been out filming like last week and you know back in the studio and it just it just feels like things and I just hope things get better now because it has been a it's been quite a emotional roller coaster actually yeah sounds like it do you think we will as a nation take any learnings from it and do you hope that we will oh, I don't know it's difficult to say actually because I just feel like people have a short memory of things. So, mm. you know, I think at the beginning, you know, I think people felt more conscious of just enjoying family time, slow, like the, the slow pace of life. I, I, I mean, I saw so many families going for bike rides, long walks, and just being together. But I think that as time goes on, I think people, and as we enter a safe phase where we're, we're, where social distancing is less of an issue and you know we've got a vaccine um, I think I think I don't know I just think people will go back to many people will go back to their old ways I just think people have memories of of what matters in life I think there was a period where people have realized that you know actually this I don't need much to have a have a good life but I don't know it's, it's hard to know I mean I think the people who have been directly affected or indirectly affected by covid will have long there will be bigger changes to them uh, personally and maybe within their families and their communities but i think other people it was just a it was just a little temporary hitch in their normal life i think everyone's going to be affected differently by this i have some quick fire questions are you ready right yeah. what would you describe as your greatest success my greatest success is quick fire. Quicker <laughs> 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 in the, the other round. Um, my greatest success, um, probably um, winning the Asian Women of Award achievement in 2018, followed um, by the uh, RTS Award, the Royal Television Society Award for Journalism in November that year. Those two, very significant because they are um, extremely, um, you know, they're the coveted awards that, you know, people win who have done extremely good work so though you know those those moments are always going to be extremely extremely 
proud moments for me and I, and you know and something I can talk to my children and my grandchildren about because it's, it's nice to have that some sort of a legacy where you've actually done something with your life that has, has raised awareness or you know people admired or appreciated and having my children that's another amazing achievement <laughs> <laughs> and your greatest failure I, don't, I wouldn't say like I've had a, a great failure as such, but I feel like I've held myself back from doing things, which I feel is, is, is a failure in myself. So an example of that is not putting myself forward early on for stories or ideas or, or not having the confidence to say to someone in my editorial team, I have this really good idea, um, I'd like to go and film it. And that's something that I wish that I had a mentor at that time who said to me, do it, go for it, you can do this. I think that I've held myself back. That I've always allowed that little voice in my head to say to me, don't do it, Val, you know, um, you're not ready yet, you don't have to do this, you don't have to do that. And, and because of that, I think it's just taken me a lot longer to get to where I am today. But not, you know, nonetheless, I'm here anyway. But what I have realized is that when I see, when I speak to you, I work with a lot of young journalists in my office now, and I do, and they, they tell me, oh, we, Val, we want to do this, we to do that and I say to them and I, I listen to them and I tell them I say you know you have to ask the question if you don't ask the question you won't know mm -hmm. I say, so don't hold yourself back and then you know I recently I've had a couple of emails from some of them saying thanks Val that was a great pep talk I'm going to be following <laughs> the story next week thanks to you and I think that you know that little voice is still there it still holds me back but every day I push it out I say no I'm not listening to you today we're going to do this I'm going to send that email and I think the other thing that I want to say is that as a woman, I feel like we don't put ourselves out there as much as men because we think that um, people are going to see us as being too ambitious or wanting too much or, you know, um, we should wait for someone else to give us that opportunity. But no, I think we, we need to be, we need to ask for more. We need to do more. Uh, and that's something that I'm battling with daily. It took me a long time to realise that the worst thing someone can say to you is no. And once you get over that you know, negativity, you can still move yeah. on. And doesn't mean that that's the end of it. There are loads of different ways to progress onwards in your life. Absolutely. The way I see it is that if people are going to say no to you, that's OK. That's OK. But what it does do, it plants a seed. You, you have to you have to put yourself out there. You have to let people know that you're interested in doing things and I think that for too long I sat waiting to be asked to do things in the early years and not putting myself out there and that's something that I'm changing now every day I'm changing that. The mantra of the women of the future is kindness and collaboration what does that mean to you in both your personal and professional life? For me at work it means supporting the next generation of journalists by actively giving them advice, mentoring them and learning from my own experiences and passing that on and also working together. I think that you know for example like you and I we work for different companies but we, we both have different sets of different sets of skills that we should share with one another as part of a community of women that are working in the same industry and help 
use that to build ourselves up professionally and personally as people, but also to help the other person build themselves up. I think that, you know, I think kindness and collaboration is, is really the only way that we can really succeed in our individual professions and as organizations. I don't think that just me working on my own, thinking about myself is going to ever lead to true success because any success is always part of a team. But also, I just think that, you know, well, I certainly feel a sense of responsibility to lift the next generation. I certainly feel like I'd like to use what I've learned to help someone else to develop their dreams. I definitely feel a deep sense of responsibility for that. And I also feel like, you know, we can learn so much more if we share what we have. I've certainly met many, um, many of my colleagues who are now some of my best friends. They've definitely um, taught me that that is the best approach. Whereas when I first entered this industry, I thought it was going to be really competitive and it was going to be an environment where each to their own, you know, you get the story, you get the contacts, you don't share with anyone. Mm, dog eat dog. Yeah, it's not like that. And it shouldn't be like that. It doesn't need to be like that. Because ultimately, what are we doing? We're working on a program. It's collective experience. It's not just for an individual. So why do we feel this need to be precious about our contacts? And our stories yes if you've got an idea and you're developing it fine but you know you can work with other people you can support them it's, it's the better way to be and there's plenty of room for all of us you know there's plenty of space for all of us to achieve what we want to do it's not an exclusive entity that I'm a presenter nobody else can present other people should be presenting and should be aiming to present if that's what they wish to do. And likewise, for me, there are other things that I'm interested in that I will then develop, which leaves room for people to want to do what I do. You know, I, do, I just don't think that we, we need to become precious about our positions or our roles, because I think that, I think that can be very limiting. Is there anything that scares you? Um, I think, uh, I guess, the fear of failure. So what I mean by that is it's that kind of whenever I get whenever I do anything that I think is particularly challenging, I always have this fear. And it's that kind of little bit of anxiety that keeps me on check. But it's but it's not just that's not just with work, but also when I'm trying something new or change. There's always that fear that, oh no, if I do that, all of this security that I've got is going to go away. And it's almost like, again, it's that voice in my head that I've got to shut down and just try things because I feel like otherwise I'll always stay in a space of mediocrity. And that's, where, that's not where I want to be. I want to aim higher because I feel that that little voice continues, sometimes just continues to hold me back. And that scares me a lot because I'm like, no, you know, life is short and this pandemic has made me realise how short it can be. And, you know, we really, really got to live to our fullest. We've really got to go out there and, and, and put ourselves out there and ask for those opportunities and change things if we feel like something isn't working and not live in this constant state of, oh, no, I can't do that because I might, I might not work it. I might fail. We've got to keep trying. That little voice that you keep talking about, it feels like that might be a form of imposter syndrome. Have you got any tips? Because you work in live television. Do you have ways of suppressing it or kind of pushing it out of the way, compartmentalising it? So, um, you know, I think, I think recently I've started meditating a little bit more. Um, it's in an effort to kind of remind myself daily about what I want to achieve and what I want to do. And that helps the little voice. And then, the, you know, the only other thing is, um, you know, my husband's my best friend. So I, I always tell him, 
you know, I really want to do this. You know, he's like, oh God, just do it. Just do it, Val. Stop talking about it. You're talking about it again. So he helps because he kind of just reassures me and reminds me that what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Mm. He always reminds me, think about the worst thing that's going to happen. And if the worst thing that's going to happen is something you can cope with, then do it. And that helps. I, I think he helps me a lot. He's a big support to me in that way. What's left on your to-do list? Gosh, what's left? Um, so I think um, write a book and I want to create a, my own sort of television show for a network channel. I would like to continue to tell stories that matter, a thought-provoking, interesting, raised debate discussion. And, you know, ultimately, I think I'd, I'd like to raise myself from, elevate myself from a regional position into a network position where I have more influence and um, a greater opportunity to work in this industry in, in a more dynamic way. I think there's so much more, there's so much more to be done. So, yeah, small steps uh, to bigger things. Would your book be about your career? I'd love to read one about your career. <laughs> I think it'd be about my memoirs, actually, because I, I, always, I always tell funny stories to some of my friends. Like, so, you know, I grew up in, a, you know, Smedic, which is, you know, it's quite, you know, predominantly Asian area where I grew up. It was quite, you know, um, so I went from this very Asian area to this very posh, white, middle-class university. And I remember, um, you know, I met loads of people whose interests were um, like horse riding and playing lacrosse. And I was like, what the hell is lacrosse? <laughs> you know, from where I grew up to suddenly went into this place where you know it was a very it was a really interesting experience because I was like what the hell is lacrosse you I know? had to google that I remember being at uni and having to google <laughs> I did I thought I didn't check anything I, I remember like going away to my room and doing googling like what is lacrosse <laughs> I'd be smiling like you know yeah lacrosse I've heard of that so I tell these stories <laughs> and they thought like, you should so write a book about that value because it you know it, we, we I, was, I was moved from one place to another place and it, it was like a culture shock for me it was a culture shock being a minority because where I grew up I wasn't a minority I was the majority <laughs> and, um, so you know that you know when people talk about ethnic minority I didn't feel like an ethnic minority until I was 18 years old and went to the University of Nottingham and I realized oh my god I am an ethnic minority but it was a wonderful experience because I got to I, I just met people from such different backgrounds completely different backgrounds to my, my own and and it was a, it was it was a unique eye-opening experience you know in so many ways and it really helped shape who I was and what I was then going to do following that. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been brilliant and fascinating listening to your story. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Women of the Future podcast. If you enjoyed it, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, why not give us a rating and review? You know you want to. For more about the Women of the Future Awards, network and initiative, please visit www.womenofthefuture.co.uk. See you soon.